We tryna live right, tryna eat right I got something to say, let me talk, let me talk. You either for me or you not. Welcome to the Future of Policing in Columbus. I'm Edie Driscoll, your host for today's episode. We'll be talking about consent decrees. Not something that many of us walk around knowing much about. We don't have one right now in Columbus, but there are folks here who would like to see one happen. So we're going to find out today where we are in that process and what needs to happen next. The Columbus Division of Police has had brushes with federal oversight since the 1970s. After a lawsuit filed by a group of black officers resulted in a judgment in 1985 that required them to behave in a more equitable manner, they changed many of their policies and then began backsliding into practices that discriminated against black citizens and their own black employees. By the late 1990s, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit that would impose a consent decree on the police that the city's mayor, city attorney, safety director, and police chief at the time, all of whom were black, fought the action and promised reforms under their own supervision. The Department of Justice went away. In the last year, local activist groups including Faith in Public Life and the Police Accountability Project, have been advocating for a consent decree to manage the cultural transformation they say is necessary. This is a tough topic, so I reached out to three experts who will help us understand it from three perspectives. Dr. Alan Joe is a leading researcher on the topic. Attorney Sean Walton works daily to lobby for federal oversight. The Reverend Dr. Susan Smith a seasoned advocate for justice, will help us understand the underlying need for this oversight. Dr. Smith is the founder of Crazy Faith Ministry in Columbus, Ohio. After being the pastor of a church for over 20 years, she now focuses on social justice work and ministers to those who don't want to go into a church. She begins our conversation today as a clergy member of Faith in Public Life, a group of clergy who have been publicly advocating for a consent decree. I asked her to help us understand where this cry for a consent decree is coming from. Well, you know, I have been thinking about this for a long time, not in direct relationship to a consent decree, but in terms of what we're asking. The police culture is one that is formed in a belief in using violence. Certainly it was the case in this country when people were deputized to, you know, find black people who were enslaved who were trying to get away. That's the culture. That's the the seed from which policing in America has sprung. So we have that element, but we also have all these other parts of the justice system which all work in cahoots with each other. So that's why there's no accountability, which is that these people on police forces do shoot and kill people, then they get away with it. The justice system is set up so that all of this works like a symphony. It's in harmony. This is what the police do. You have a you have a grand jury, the grand jury lets the police off, the police officers go back to where they were. If there's a trial, you know, it's not really 
uh, don't try a whole lot of them for, for, for murders. So what happens is there's a settlement um, taxes are used to give these settlements and the, the family goes away with some money, but their loved one is gone. And I'm just, I look at this and I think something is wrong with the system governing bodies make these laws which just makes it impossible for there to be justice for um, people who are, are attacked basically by police officers and I believe in my heart that they do it just because they can. I'm reminded right now as I'm talking to you of this woman who participated in the January 6th insurrection and she said, you know, she flew in on her private plane and she is convinced that she's not going to get arrested. And she said the reason that why is because I'm white and I'm blonde. And I'm thinking that that right there is at the heart of so much of what I see that African-Americans, people of color, are criminalized, and there's a, a thought process that goes in front of police officers that these are bad people, and we have to get rid of them, and we can shoot them, and all we have to do is say that we were in fear for our lives, and we'll be off the hook. And that is a pattern. So a consent decree where some of this violence is stopped and some of the use of military grade weapons is stopped and the police officers are treating specifically African-Americans, but other people of color and different religions are treating them like they're not human and that they are bona fide, you know, before you even ask about it, criminals, and that's just not right. They're not going to change on their own because it's the culture. This is a, a police culture which has been fine-tuned over hundreds of years. And without some type of intervention to, to curb the killing of unarmed people and throwing people in prison for minor things while letting some people off of other races who have done far worse things, it's just got to stop. And, and I don't see that there's any other way other than federal government intervention. I don't see that there's any other way. With Dr. Smith's insight in mind, I turned to Dr. Alan Zhao, a professor of criminal justice specializing in policing at Rowan University in New Jersey. I caught up with him while on sabbatical last semester as he compiled auditing data from every consent decree over the last 20 plus years. That research, when completed, will be the first ever glimpse at the effectiveness of the use of consent decrees to improve policing in the U.S. Professor Zhao, thank you so much for being with me today. This is a topic that folks in Columbus are very interested in. I'm thinking that we might want to start with some insight into the Violent Crime Act of 1994 mm -hmm. and how it restructured the regulation of police behavior in the U.S. Can you, can you start us out with that? Yes, uh, the, uh, the, the 1994 crime bill uh, was usually known as a bill for community-oriented policing uh, for the uh, purpose of fighting and reducing crime. Uh, the, uh, the, the part that's often ignored is the, uh, this um, uh, Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice actually instituted a program called the Federal Consent Decree, uh, which is used to um, uh, make, sh make sure that uh, local police departments are in compliance with constitutional requirements and uh, federal laws. So that, that's basically where the con consent decree actually uh, was born from, from the 1994 uh, crime bill. So in 1999, uh, a couple years after that, 
um, the Department of Justice attempted to come into Columbus, Ohio, and supervise our police department by using one of these consent decrees. The leadership at the time included the mayor, the police chief, the safety director, essentially struck a deal with the Department of Justice, promising the reforms that they were looking for. And so we never did have a consent decree in Columbus. Can you help us understand how that would have worked if they had done that at the time? And and maybe a little bit about how does the Department of Justice choose which cities that they want to work with? Yes, um, it's uh, often looked at in various cities. It doesn't always lead to a consent decree. Uh, I'm, I'm not um, familiar with the details of what the situation was in 1999 in Columbus, but uh, my guess is that the uh, situation was not it didn't rise up to the what they call the pattern and practice violation, which is system, uh, systemic, uh, not just the tar- targeting individual officer misconduct uh, behavior, but the entire police department is systematically um, um, in, in, in non-compliance with uh, constitutional policing requirements. So it, if uh, there were a consent decree at that time, it would be a very long-term uh, endeavor uh, between the federal government, uh, specifically the uh, Department of Justice and uh, the city of Columbus to actually um, uh, imp- uh, you know, reach an agreement first and through negotiation and reach a consent decree and, uh, and then have a federal monitor, a uh, federal judge actually approve the uh, consent decree and then the federal judge will appoint a monitor to monitor the progress and implementation, which is uh, extremely arduous and um, uh, costly, uh, resource-intensive effort. Uh, it's not something that uh, uh, that can be done um, with with a light heart. Uh, we require a lot of commitment, a lot of loose ends coming together. Um, politicians, uh, law enforcement leadership, rank and file, um, members of the community, um, you know, all have to come together. It's a very, it's a very long-term effort. It could last, it could last five years, could last even 10 years. Interesting. So around the same time, one of our sister cities here in the Midwest, um, Pittsburgh, did have a consent decree. And yes. in 2005, the Vera Institute conducted a review of that consent decree. And at that point, that uh, report that the Vera Institute issued appeared hopeful that this approach would make lasting change. But then um, we learned 10 years later in a study of Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, another Ohio Mm -hmm. city and Washington DC, there were questions about whether those changes were sustained past the period of federal oversight. And then in 2017, another set of researchers reached similar conclusions. Can you take us through some of that research and help us understand what those researchers found? Yes, the uh, Pittsburgh actually was the first uh, consent decree ever done uh, in the history of federal involvement in doing this consent decree, Pittsburgh was always mentioned because that is the number one, the first one in 1997. 
it was a year that the uh, consent decree was signed. Um, as, as you said, well, there was an evaluation of the Pittsburgh uh, consent decree, followed by several different researchers. And the basic idea is that it's complicated, but the basically um, it's um, positive. It demonstrates that the civilian complaints uh, review process uh, improved. Uh, basically, uh, the process became uh, more efficient. And that's basically the, the number one positive finding from the evaluation. And, um, and then after that, we have other um, assessment of consent decrees, like in um, um, cities like Washington, D.C., um, Cincinnati, as you mentioned, Ohio, Detroit, Prince George. The uh, evaluation of those places suggests also that um, some positive uh, results in the area of training and um, policies established uh, to create organizational change uh, in reducing police misconduct and uh, to make the police more efficient and effective. The um, um, empirical evidence is uh, very rare in this area. Uh, there are only a handful of studies. Uh, another study following that also indicate that uh, consent decrees were effective in reducing police misconduct. Um, and uh, personally, myself was involved with the uh, the study of the Los Angeles Police Department consent decree, and uh, th that uh, evaluation was also positive, showing basically that the reform had led to increased uh, public satisfaction, decreased frequency in the use of force incidents, improved quality of stops and arrests, and uh, significant organizational and operational changes in the LAPD. So uh, those are basically the roughly the few studies actually that have been completed. It, as I said, it's very rare and um, this is one blank area. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of information, but yet to be examined um, at a wider scale. So during Trump's presidency, attorney Merrick Garland reduced the use of this approach dramatically, I understand. Do we have any information on what impact that um, decision has had on policing? Uh, yes, the, uh, uh, the, this, this program is obviously uh, was viewed by the Trump administration as, uh, as one of the liberal uh, program. Um, people in the business in, uh, studying policing and uh, even including police leadership uh, they don't view it as partisan. It's basically, it's uh, the purpose is to fight and reduce crime and uh, to make the police more effective. Um, so by reducing police misconduct, so they can be more um, supported by the community so they can be more effective. So it's really, it really shouldn't be a partisan, a viewed as a partisan program. So the Trump administration basically uh, after um, the first attorney general, Jeff Session was basically, um, you know, instructed by Trump to curtail, eventually basically kind of completely stop the, um, the use of the consent decree uh, during his four-year presidency. So, um, so now uh, we, we have uh, a Democrat in the White House. So make, kind of look, make it look like a partisan. It's really not. Uh, it's really to make the police more professional and, um, um, and uh, make them more effective. It's in the interest of all citizens. Um, 
So the um, I think the the impact obviously is um, it, it's very complicated. You know, during the Trump administration, all these um, um, uh, protests against product, police brutality, and um, uh, some some people even call for defunding the police. Uh, so a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion, and um, uh, this one was just uh, um, <clears throat> became politicized. It, as many other things uh, during the Trump administration, so which really shouldn't be treated as, as I said, as partisan. And um, um, unfortunately, it was I, I, I personally believe it was misunderstood by the Trump administration. And uh, so the policy of curtailing the use of consent decree uh, was misguided. And you feel there's no data that actually says what impact that's had yet. I mean, it's pretty recent, right? That to know if that contributed to any additional inefficiencies within policing. Yeah, there's no data on uh, the impact of the Trump administration. Obviously, uh, the you know the direct impact is nothing was down. You know, the, there were no consent decrees uh, down under. Uh, the Trump in the Trump uh, on the Trump presidency. So if they were not down, you can't even evaluate. So the, it's it's basically uh, those who were uh, monitored uh, previously. Um, they will simply continue the consent decree reached before the Trump administration, because many consent decrees were still in place. Um, they were all under review by the by Jeff Sessions, um, you know, Department of Justice. Uh, program, the, um, they simply continue. The, um, uh, some state actually, including Illinois, picked up the uh, consent decree on its own since Trump administration was not doing about anything about it. So uh, create a new kind of a consent decree uh, at the state level, uh, which is kind of innovative, but uh, it, the idea is essentially the same. Uh, if the federal government is not involved, state can still do something about it. Uh, yeah, the impact is not just not uh, studied, and all we know is that's not done. You know, uh, the police uh, during the during the time were um, pretty demoralized, and uh, a lot of issues going on. You know, COVID and and protests, and and uh, so so um, yeah, the, the specific impact of what happened to consent decree obviously has not been studied. That makes yes. sense. Thanks for clarifying mm -hmm. that. So in, in 2021, this year, you published a comprehensive examination of the entire concept. Tell us more about what you were looking for in that research and what you found and what's next for you in your research on this topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was doing this um, because I, I realized there was a lot of confusion about consent decree. Obviously, there are people who, like uh, our previous uh, administration, uh, believe that um, there were already too many consent decrees and they tied the hands of the police. They, uh, they, they, they simply, they are too costly. And uh, so they, on, they only saw the negative aspect of it. And the other side of the um, debate was uh, these are very promising programs that can help police achieve better accountability and higher performance. So because of the confusion, I wanted to do a review to see what's, what, what do we know about it? And um, 
uh, basically uh, my my review's purpose is to really better understand this whole concept. And um, um, what I have found basically was I think the meaningful findings from this review was that um, uh, there were some issues that we need to really pay attention to um, to uh, make the consent decree really work. And a lot of people don't know how involved uh, this program uh, really is. And uh, so my research is basically to develop those understanding, those few areas uh, that need to be addressed uh, very carefully, very clearly. Um, and then uh, my my future research, uh, basically, in in a nutshell, this is what I what I think need to be addressed. The terms of the consent decree need to be very carefully uh, developed. That's number one. It's got to be very clear. When you have a consent decree, it's like a legal contract. It need to be very specific, very clear. Second. The, um, uh, you need to be very careful in, in, in who to appoint as the independent federal monitor. That monitor is the, uh, the overarching figure in this whole process, extremely important position. And the, thirdly, the leadership and management of the police department and how they institutionalize, institutionalize policies and practices, extremely important. And, um, uh, and including addressing the change of culture in the police department. And lastly, is this audit function, which is really the nitty gritty detail of this entire consent decree gonna hinge on that, which hardly anybody understands. The, the auditing function, extremely important to make sure everything is implemented correctly and um, is eventually measured as um, in compliance or not in compliance. So those are basically what I try to address in my in my review, uh, in, in researching the, uh, the, the this area, and uh, and right now I'm doing more uh, studies on police auditing. And uh, actually, I did write a book about police auditing, which not really written about consent decree, uh, but now we know auditing is eventually the core of this consent decree. That got to be in there. Without audit, we don't know what's going to happen to the consent decree. That makes sense, and that that ties back into all that that earlier research was saying that looks like there might be promising, but we don't know how they may play out after uh, the supervision is removed. So that makes, that makes tremendous amount of sense. What else is important for our community to know as they consider asking the Department of Justice for a consent decree? What haven't we covered yet? Uh, yeah, I'd just like to uh, uh, remind uh, people that uh, this is a um, uh, an area that's uh, it's very different from all the other uh, reform um, previously. You know, most police reform previously um, involved sometimes a government appointed commission. Um, we have civilian review. Um, we have police progressive police leaders who internally drive some reform efforts. Uh, one thing that people need to understand is that all these previous reform efforts uh, don't seem to last very long. Uh, one reason is they come and go with the people uh, that staff those commissions. Uh, they come and go with the um, police leaders and um, uh, civilian review uh, has a lot of limitations. 
And then how does the uh, consent decree fit in in this whole picture of uh, police reform? Uh, consent decree is, I, I, I believe, based on my research, is much more involved. Um, it's much more extensive. It's not a temporary program or project. Uh, you know, somebody comes in and, and did something and then leave. Um, so it's, it's much more involved. Uh, if you really want to do it right, you must have all those areas I mentioned earlier, uh, including the uh, a audit function uh, institutionalized on a permanent basis. So that will keep this program in place, keep the functions and um, all the positive things that are supposed to come out of it, um, you know, uh, last um, on, the, on a long-term basis. It's, so um, if consent decree is lifted eventually by a federal judge, will the, um, uh, the positive impact continue is always the question. And so I, I, the way to keep it going, to um, perpetuate this, this, this positive impact is to have a institutionalized audit function um, in, in this, in this uh, process. And that, that's, I think that's the key. It's, it's much more complicated than most people realize. Thank you so much. This has been incredibly interesting and important to understand. And I wish you well with your future research. And we will circle back to see what you've learned um, in a few months, maybe. We'll see, we'll see what, what news is, is coming up. And we'll also see what uh, is happening with Columbus and, and whether we have a consent degree. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Bringing this back to Columbus in real time, I caught up with Sean Walton, a civil rights attorney in Columbus who has taken a leadership role in helping the community search for solutions to problems with policing in Columbus. He has represented families of victims of police violence and worked on public policy initiatives that seek racial equity in our justice system. He's on the board of the Ohio Association for Justice and the National Association for Justice. Most recently, he co-founded the Columbus Police Accountability Project. First of all, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the future of policing in Columbus. We have a lot of problems to solve here, and I know that you are very much in the thick of that. But today I want to talk about consent decrees, and I want to find out first, when did you become aware of them? They haven't been around very long. Well, you know, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, this is very important work that you're doing and it's a very important conversation. Uh, for me, uh, I think back around 2014 or 2015, when I first started really uh, taking on civil rights cases against the Columbus Division of Police, I started to see a, a pattern in practice of behavior where I felt like there uh, had to be some level of accountability for the culture that had been created over time and the constitutional violations that have existed uh, with the Columbus Division of Police and how they police our community. And so uh, in my work as a litigator, I began to speak with experts in police practices. And uh, one gentleman that I spoke with was in Illinois. And he had actually served as a federal monitor uh, for a consent decree in another city. And so we started to talk about uh, what a consent decree looked like, um, how it could be used as a tool 
by the community in order to rectify past wrongs. And so I did research. I found that in Oakland, uh, Oakland had a very powerful consent decree that they're, I believe, still trying to, uh, to resolve their issues through that consent decree. And I saw that federal oversight and I saw powerful civil rights attorneys that had uh, used consent decrees in other cities to bring federal oversight to police departments that were out of control. And so I would say about around 2014, 2015, I became aware. I started researching more. And uh, I truly believed at that point that Columbus needed a consent decree in order to rectify past injustices. At that time, were you aware that they had been um, approached by DOJ about 15 years before um, and actually didn't accept a consent decree at that point? Did that come up in your research? It, it did. It did. And it, uh, it obviously stood out to me because that is something that uh, in my research I found was very rare. Uh, I believe that Columbus was the first city to actually fight a consent decree or the, the actual lawsuit that led to a, a consent decree. And uh, to this day, Columbus may be the only city to, uh, to fight that and to not voluntarily enter into a consent decree. So I started to see bits and pieces online, but I couldn't really find a, a true story as to why uh, that happened in that way. And so I started to uh, make calls and I, I almost became an investigative reporter trying to figure out what happened. And so um, I started to see the backstory there and uh, the way that Columbus negotiated their way out of that and how harmful it was and the subsequent years uh, as a result. As recently as a year or so ago, they were actually, they meaning the um, Columbus Division of Police were actually bragging about that accomplishment on their website in Columbus. They are, you know, as the only city that has been able to get out of one. Um, so right now, this the Columbus Division of Police has some relationship with the Department of Justice, which I understand to be sort of more of a consulting or a training partnership. Can you help us understand what's actually going on right now? Absolutely. And, and so Right now, uh, the, the COPS uh, division of the Department of Justice, which is the Community-Oriented Policing Services Division, they have entered into a, a consultation agreement with the city of Columbus. And the city has pitched it as innovative and the first of its kind, uh, but it is really a misstep here. And it's an egregious misstep. And it's very much in line with what happened in 19, uh, 99, when the DOJ filed the lawsuit, uh, finding a pattern of racial discrimination within the Columbus Division of Police, and they fought it. Here, um, there was a, 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 a shift in the thinking of the community, and people really realized that we cannot continue to rely on uh, politicians to make political decisions and in a matter that is so um, of, of such grave concern to our community. And so a uh, movement began and the Columbus Police Accountability Project formed of which I'm a, a co-founder. And we plan to ask the DOJ to come in and investigate the Columbus Division of Police and enter into a consent decree. And uh, curiously, Mayor Ginther uh, announced 
the day before a press conference, I uh, can only imagine that word leaked out to him that uh, the city, that Mayor Ginther and that city attorney, Zach Klein, were asking the DOJ to come in and that they had talked to the head of the cops division and that they were uh, asking for help. Now, the issue here is that the cops division is generally uh, an office that provides assistance regarding technical issues or trying to get a department up to speed in terms of 21st century policing, they'll come in and they'll help like a small town that doesn't have the resources and doesn't have the training. Now, the issue here is that over the past few years, the city of Columbus has spent millions of dollars uh, having studies done on what's wrong with the department, having recommendations from outside consulting groups, from experts, but also from uh, task force that the mayor has put together and they've already made recommendations regarding where the issues are within CDP and what needs to happen. And so cops coming in, they're simply doing the same thing over again, but people hear federal government, they hear DOJ, and they think that something's happening. What it really is, is a political move in order to uh, avoid the black eye of a consent decree, because a consent decree is not a consultation agreement. It is federal oversight. It's a mandate that uh, a federal judge enforces. And if the division does not institute serious reforms, then there are legal measures that can, that can come in. Now here with this COPS review, there's nothing that can happen. There's no accountability. And on top of that, I think maybe the most frustrating thing for me is that the police chief and, and the mayor are going to pick what they ask the COPS office to review. So it, it's, uh, it's not a, a DOJ, investigation that would lead to a consent decree. It's not the same thing. It's nowhere near it. And um, in, in my mind, we still need to have that investigation, at least to a consent decree, and there's nothing preventing that. So just clarifying, this is not a first step towards a consent decree, which, it, which many may think it is, or it may look like that, that the COPS program, in your perspective, is not tasked with looking for that um, underlying difficulties that CPD is having in conducting business, that, that they, in fact, if they're allowed to say, look here, don't look there, they may be able to direct the investigators away from any potential problems. Is that, is that how you're thinking about it? You know, that, that's exactly how, uh, how it is going to play out. And so just for context, uh, since this decision has been made, I've actually met with the uh, attorney general uh, over the civil rights division, as well as the head of the, the cops division, uh, which is, you know, a, a position that's under um, the civil rights division. And so I've met with them. I've talked to them about our concerns and they've talked to me about their process. And so I can confirm that uh, COPS consultations are partnerships and they do not lead to a consent decree. That's not what this is. Now, if things were to pop up that may uh, pique the interest of the Civil Rights Division, then the COPS division can communicate that and they can you know, look at that. But that's not the plan here. Um, and again, the city can cherry pick and decide what gets turned over and what does not. And so 
if they want to avoid a consent decree, they're not going to show anything that's going to lead to, to an investigation that would lead to a consent decree. The goal here is to avoid a consent decree. So this is not what that is. And using the Department of Justice and the cops division as a shield uh, to avoid that actual investigation is doing a disservice to this community. And it is very, very um, similar to what happened over 20 years ago when they negotiated their way out of the consent decree. So at the end of a normal engagement from the cops department, um, which as you said before, is usually with a smaller police department that doesn't have the kind of training and management levels that we have here, you would not expect a report to the community like, for instance, the matrix report was that gives us any sort of insight into what's happening. What what we're expected to believe is that somehow this relationship will just generally improve things and that we are supposed to enjoy those improvements later. Is that, <laughs> that's what it feels like, what you're saying, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that's, you know, that is the, the extreme concern that needs to be on everyone's mind right now is that there's no blueprint for how this plays out. There's no precedent because typically the cops division will advise the smaller police departments and they'll provide certain resources if those departments don't have those resources. But Columbus has all of that. And so you're correct. We're supposed to sit back and hope that whatever they come up with is going to make an impact when nothing they've done so far has actually made the impact that's necessary. And so that is uh, an extreme concern. And, you know, again, there's, there's, no, there's no oversight here. It's a partnership. And so essentially, Mayor Ginther and, and, and the police department are running the consultation arrangement. You know, they're deciding what they need help with and, and what they, uh, you know, want there. And so uh, my understanding is that there's not going to be any kind of report. Uh, but if there was a report, that would be frustrating because, as you mentioned, we have the matrix report. We already have that. We, I have it on my computer. I, I think it's what, 300 pages? It could be longer, but yes. it outlines the technical recommendations that are needed. You know, um, I, I've been dealing with this in the trenches since 2015. And I know that uh, there was a, a task force that uh, the governor had that was centered around 21st century policing and, and advancing police community relations. Nothing from that report has been implemented. I know that the Ohio Supreme Court also had a task force on grand jury reform and investigating police-involved shootings. And they made a bunch of recommendations, none of which have been implemented. And so over and over again, we keep having these recommendations and these reports, but there's no enforcement and there is no accountability. And that's why we need a consent decree because that's what happens there is that the problems are clearly outlined. There's a plan to address those problems. And if those problems are not properly addressed, then we have accountability and we have enforcement of the agreement and we have moves that are made to, to protect the citizens. We, don't, we do not have that here with this COPS uh, consultation. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the possible challenges with a consent decree. We saw during um, the Trump administration when Jeff Sessions was attorney general that he chose not to continue oversight of these consent decrees. And 
For instance, there was one in place in Chicago. You mentioned Illinois earlier. The Illinois solution was to bring the oversight down to the state level and not trust the federal government given the political um, waverings from administration to administration. Do you think if the DOJ refuses to enter into a consent decree with Columbus that maybe there's some option at the state level? So uh, what I'll say is that uh, I don't believe that the solution is at the state level. Uh, I'm involved with uh, some lobbying efforts and, and other um, other interests, uh, you know, at the state house, and so I understand the dynamics there. Um, I've been involved a bit with uh, some recommendations in terms of uh, a police reform bill in Ohio that was first recommended, you know, in the summer of 2020 yes. after the the protest around George Floyd. And nothing has happened with that, you know, alleged uh, police reform bill in this time. And so there's not really a, a taste for uh, police reform at the state level. And it would kind of be uh, playing hot potato in terms of who uh, would have accountability here. Now, what I will go back to is the DOJ under different administrations. Now, uh, while Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice, they did not uh, push any more consent decrees my understanding is that the, the existing consent decrees that were already in play uh, remained in play. And when you have a consent decree, it, it comes after a federal lawsuit has been filed. So you have a, a federal judge that oversees that. And so, you know, we have a few more years left, at least of the, the Biden administration. And so if we can have an investigation, and if that investigation finds a, a pattern in practice of uh, constitutional violations, then the hope would be that uh, that the city enters into a consent decree and that regardless of what it, what presidential administration is in place, that consent decree will still be in play because a federal judge will be overseeing it. So it may have some life, uh, you know, beyond that. I think the, the issue is that, uh, you know, as a new administration comes in, if there's an ongoing investigation, sometimes those investigations just stop. And that's what happened with the the Trump administration. But yeah. if the ball's already rolling and it's already down on paper, that consent decree stays. And so that, and that's truly what protects us because on the local level, what happens if Mayor Ginther doesn't get reelected? Then we have to hope that the next mayor uh, wants to work with the cops division in the same way or has the same vision. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's the same with Zach Klein and the city attorney's office. So what we need is a consent decree. So thinking about the ongoing oversight that you mentioned a minute ago, um, I'm personally involved in um, reporting on the ongoing implementation of the matrix report in the safety commission and, and have been able to see very little progress on either of those. What I also understand is that consent decrees can fall under the same um, sort of rubric of challenges in that when the federal judge signs off eventually on all of these, you know, checklist of uh, reforms have been made, that things can then sort of kick back to what they used to be. And we, of course, saw that with the POER lawsuit in Columbus in the 80s. Um, huge number of reforms were instigated, and then we are essentially right back prior to that uh, lawsuit. So the, um, I understand there are some cities 
that in their consent decrees put ongoing reform uh, monitoring so that um, a body like the Civilian Review Board or another independent um, review, either a commissioner or a review board is established to make sure that um, not only during the time period of the consent decree, but beyond that, um, there is someone saying we're not falling backwards. Is that mm -hmm. something that um, you have seen work or you have considered in your lobbying for a consent decree here? Absolutely. And, and what is important for us to, to know about a consent decree is that it's not a magic pill. It's not the end all be all. And in other cities, there have been a lot of um, a lot of lessons learned with regard to uh, the pros and cons of consent decrees. And so um, Columbus always touts itself as an innovative city and, you know, ahead of other cities around the country. And so my hope would be that we could craft a consent decree that is a holistic effect on policing in Columbus, you know, and it requires uh, the federal government bringing in community groups, citizens, uh, different people that have a, a vested interest in policing in Columbus and working even outside of the consent decree and establishing programs that support the reforms within the consent decree and also provide for continuation, as you said, and, and, and you do need independent oversight. I mean, you know, just to sum it up for me, what a consent decree will do in Columbus is it will address all of the, the vast inadequacies within the current system of policing uh, that lead to um, the quote unquote bad apples, you know, that, that, that we end up seeing here in Columbus Division of Police has a lot of bad apples. And so, you know, ultimately it will kind of break down this infrastructure that is problematic and allow it to be rebuilt. And as we rebuild that, that comes in conjunction with the other things that we will holistically be looking at, you know, more um, counseling, you know, more uh, mental health uh, support, you know, things like that, that um, allow for officers to, to not be tasked with, uh, you know, solving problems that they're not trained to solve. So absolutely, we need a, a, a holistic approach here. And the consent decree is a tool within many tools that we can use. But we need that consent decree in order to to attack this, this system that has been pretty much indestructible and to rebuild it. And as Columbus uh, politicians say, you know, we're, we're reimagining policing in Columbus and that's what the consent decree helps us do. It's all been incredibly informative and I'm sure most people listening didn't know even, you know, 10% of this before we started talking. What else do our listeners need to know to understand um, either how to help make a consent decree happen here or how to be part, if it does happen, how to be an effective part of that process. What, what do citizens need to know to either educate themselves or become active in this uh, solution? Uh, I would say first and foremost, um, obviously because the political uh, leaders involved here are the ones who are making the decision to hold them accountable. And obviously you can do that, you know, at the, the, the ballot on election day, at, at, you know, at, at the ballot box on election day. But beyond that, you can make calls now. And 
Um, you know, if you understand uh, the information that has been provided in this in this podcast and you agree that something needs to be done, then you should call and you should ask them to uh, ask the federal government to come in and investigate. And that's what needs to happen. Not a not a partnership, but an investigation. Now, if that investigation uh, leads to a clean bill of health for the division of police, then great. But if it doesn't, then it's the right thing to do. And it, it does not um, hurt to ask for that. And so uh, everyone from Mary Ganther to uh, Zach Klein in the city attorney's office, the city council, to our um, US Congress people that have a say-so here, they should be making calls and asking for that investigation. And you mentioned something really, really uh, important here, and that's that the city brags about the fact that they have not entered into a consent decree. And so this decision to bring in cops is not about uh, doing what's best for the people of this city. It is about saving face. And they bragged about that back when uh, the settlement was first reached, I believe in 2002. Um, the chief at the time, Chief Jackson, he actually gloated and he said that this was vindication. The settlement was vindication that they had did nothing wrong and that they uh, were able to go forward without that consent decree. But he literally said that it was vindicating and that they did nothing wrong. And that completely flies in, in the face of the fact that the federal Department of Justice investigated, it, that investigation began in I think 1997 or 98, uh, culminating in a lawsuit in 1999, and the city negotiated with them and fought it until 2002. And they still claim no wrongdoing, and that shines a light on why uh, for the next 20 years, we've had a continued uh, deterioration of the police community relationship in Columbus because it, it's just, it's they do not accept responsibility. So we have to call them uh, to task here. We have to push for a consent decree because we do not want to be sitting here another, you know, 20 years from now uh, trying to figure out what needs to happen. This needs to happen now. Wonderful talking to you today. I thank you so much for your time. And I do hope we'll talk again sometime soon. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for your work as well. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Future of Policing in Columbus with Edie Driscoll. My guests today were Dr. Susan Smith from Faith and Public Life, Dr. Alan Zhao from Rowan University, and Attorney Sean Walton from the Columbus Police Accountability Project. You can check out our other episodes at matternews.org and at WCBE Podcast Experience or anywhere you get your podcasts. Why you keeping me down? Why you crossing the line? Why you crossing the line? I'm just raising my voice. Why you keeping me down? Why you keeping me down?